Uh, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Rigged. We're, you know, making up for lost time here, and I think this is because there's a lot of uh, new developments with the case. So um, we have Chris and Ilias here today, and uh, we are going to talk about uh, the discovery that um, CPCS has in Massachusetts has has uncovered with um, in regards to some emails and some criminal referrals to um, to the uh, who did they make them to? Was it to the the district attorney, the attorney general's the attorney office? general's office? Yep. But to clarify, so uh, CPCS joined the case really recently. This was from the consolidated Middlesex cases, um, and uh, we've got three attorneys. Right now, working on that, Jim McKenna, Greg Batten, and uh, Abby Shaivitz, and I used to represent one of the uh, defendants in those cases. So they actually got this information a little bit earlier last year, but it was impounded. A judge recently allowed CPCS to intervene, and they shared with CPCS the same documents. Wow. And didn't one of the judge, like when they impounded it, wanted to impound it for 50 years, Chris? Is that true? Initially, Judge Lou ordered it to be impounded for like 50 years, yeah, and then a different judge. <laughs> Was it the JFK murder files? And then, yeah, a different judge uh, just ordered them released very recently. And, and when you, so we're going to read, like, the, so it's um, criminal referrals and then emails that have not been seen yet. And the emails, to me, are very, very enlightening. Because it, it really peels back the curtain behind the OIG's conspiracy to not only lie to the state, um, but lie to the media and therefore, therefore lie to the public about in the, court. in the courts and and everyone about and, and doing it under like very flimsy justification because they were all in on their BS um, Annie Dukin's the lone bad actor. And when that just unraveled almost immediately. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, I don't think she, it was, I mean, I'm speaking, I'm, I'm kind of putting the cart before the horse here, but uh, yeah, they, they, they were giving all kinds of justification for someone lying in court about their credentials. And, uh, you know, th this kind of justification somehow does not like gets dropped whenever a criminal matter is in play, you know, like they don't, they don't really uh, give people the benefit of the doubt when they've done, you know, they possess drugs like Ilias's uh, client who had um, the cashew, you know, that was that was cocaine or that was crack. But here, you know, if someone lies on their resume, they're like, oh, you know, she kind of had the coursework, so no big deal. But we'll, well, we'll get to that. Well, it's crazy because, I mean, uh, Chris can say better better than I can, although I guess in, in many criminal cases, the defendant does not testify. But I can say, as somebody who does pretty much 100% civil work, if your client gets caught lying on the witness stand, usually you can start packing up your bags and uh, because it's over, right? If, you're if your client is caught in a, in a, in a clear lie, um, and because then the, 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 what you hear in closing argument is, why do you believe any word coming out of that person's mouth? They right. lied about this. They lied about everything. And 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 so th the idea that just fudging your resume is no big deal um, is is insane. Given that uh, if, if anyone, uh, certainly any civil plaintiff and probably any criminal defendant got caught, 
that would be bad news. Right. These referrals get far beyond lying on your resume because one's for lying to the police during the Hinton lab investigation, uh, two more or for the BZP and Foxy issues. Others are for other chemists potentially spiking samples. So it's not just <laughs> a little fib about your resume. It's, it's also Kate Corbett uh, potentially, you know, uh, tainting drug samples on purpose. So to recap, Kate Corbett did everything Annie Dukin, practically everything Annie Dukin was accused of doing. She lied about her credentials. She spiked samples. She turned negatives into positives. Well, let's, <laughs> let's look at what the inspector general himself had to say about okay. Kate Corbett. All right. So, so let's, well, let's, let's, you want to, oh, are you going to read from, uh, well, we'll the email do you want maybe Julianne Nasif first. Yeah, let's so. let's start with Julianne Nasif. So Julianne Nasif, for those of you who don't remember, was the director of the lab. She was Charles Salemi's boss, and Charles Salemi uh, ran the lab with Annie Dukin, uh, the Hinton lab, and also, um, yeah, and Julianne Nasif was also the boss of the Amherst lab um, with uh, with those guys out there. But so she was physically at the at the Hinton lab. Yes, like, physically believe, in the building, right? Yeah, in in the building, and and maybe even I I forget how the floors were allocated, but she was there. Yeah, um, and in Hanchett, in in the the supervisor of the Amherst lab, James Hanchett, complained that she never went out to see what was actually going on in his lab, right? Oh, it was super far. <laughs> it's not like it was her entire job. All right. I mean so, that was the uh, well. I mean that was the argument. We'll get to this, but why um, OIG shouldn't look at uh, Amherst because, man, it's far away, right? There was... <laughs> Bro, you want me to get in my car? Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so, so before we dive into this, just background, uh, General Laws, Chapter 12A, Section 10, uh, it's about the Inspector General's office, and it says, in carrying out his duties and responsibilities, Inspector General shall report to the attorney general, the United States attorney or both, whenever the inspector general has reasonable grounds to believe there has been a violation of federal or state criminal law, um, said attorney general shall institute appropriate further proceedings. So that's where these come in. Right. And thank you for bringing that to our attention, uh, Chris. You always bring that kind of stuff, and it's really great. AKA that by that kind of stuff, I mean the actual laws and what <laughs> what these people are responsible for. So December 11th, 2013, um, this was mailed to or sent to Edward Bedrosian, uh, first assistant attorney general from Massachusetts Office of the Attorney General. Uh, it says, Dear Mr. Bedrosian, uh, pursuant to Massachusetts General Law, Chapter 12, um, I... I I am writing to you to report that I have reasonable grounds to believe that there has been a violation of state criminal law by former Hinton Drug Lab Director Julianne Nasif. In her interview with the Massachusetts State Police on December 5th, 2012, Ms. Nasif stated that between December 11th and February, uh, December uh, 2011 and February 2012, chemist Peter Pirro 
notified her that Annie Dukin had improperly written chemist Nicole Medina's initials on a document and had also raised certain concerns regarding a QC mix. See Massachusetts State Police Report of Julie, Julia Nasif interview. Uh, we've been over those. Ms. Nasif further reported to the Massachusetts State Police during the, that same interview that she took Piro's information and gave it to Attorney Chilean, who was doing the investigation for DPH on the 90 samples. So what that's referring to is, that if you remember, we've done, we did a episode a while back about the, the quote-unquote June breach, and that's the justification for all of this happening, <coughs> where Annie Dukin... <coughs> checked 90 samples out of the evidence office improperly against their um, protocols. She just took them rather than checking them out to, to then run tests on them. Um, on December 5th, 2013, attorney uh, Stephen Chilean and attorney Stephen Chilean worked for the DPH and he uh, was approached by Julianne Nasif and asked to investigate what happened with that breach. So uh, Stephen Chilean... Oh, go ahead. In DPH. I'm not sure it was her, but once people higher up got word of what had happened, he got appointed. Right. Oh, so she didn't go to him. It was it, he was appointed by it was from higher up. Yeah. All right. So uh, attorney Chilean testified under oath at the office of the inspector general that at that time I provided attorney Chilean a copy of Ms. Nasif's police report and asked him to read paragraphs 18 and 19. After reviewing Ms. Nasif's statement, Mr. Chilean testified that Ms. Nasif had not relayed that information to him. And if she had, he would have noted that information in his interview notes. Based on these facts, the Office of the Inspector General has reasonable grounds to believe that there has been a violation of state criminal law by Julianne Nasif, specifically that she willfully misled a police officer in violation of Mass General Law uh, Chapter 268. What's that little ad section? Oh, Section 13B. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> so, so lying to the police lying to the state police who were investigating this, and she was never, ever charged with any crime, correct? And correct. And like the, I think just saying lying to the police doesn't really fully encapsulate what's going on here in the context. If, if you and the listeners remember, um, she had lied to the state police regarding Dukin, uh, or I guess allegations of misconduct at the lab previously because of the Coverdell grants. So she had been right. worried about money at this particular point in time, and they were all worried that the lab would be closed if they didn't secure funding. And so uh, it seems uh, par for the course that she would uh, not report additional allegations of misconduct up the chain because that would result in that being reported to the feds and then a lot of people losing their jobs, potentially because of the loss of grant funding. Right. So she, you know, made a lot of bad decisions cascading one after the next. And I actually, um, in the, the crap that I found, saw that she was personally directing what, where Dukin could and could not testify in the last few months of her employment at the lab. Dukin ran everything by Nasif. Nasif personally was micromanaging Dukin's every movement at the lab. 
um, it, it was very, very interesting the amount of detail that a director would take with a chemist. Um, be, uh, she obviously knew that Dukin was up to no good, and but she was still allowing her to testify in court. And uh, in some cases, process samples, even though uh, she would wasn't wasn't she the one that said Dukin could no longer process samples? I, I can't so. remember. There was there were statements that she was in the lab after that anyway. Yeah, but um, but she was personally directing Dukin uh, to the very end, and uh, it's it's very strange how this whole thing went down. And like you said, she lied multiple times. And so the the whole idea that Dukin was the lone bad actor, not only I mean it, not only was it transparent bullshit, but the director of the lab was a bad actor, lied to, to the police. Granted, she didn't tamper with samples, but she she lied to investigators. But so, we still have more referrals coming. So yeah, <laughs> so, on on this uh, on this issue of Nassif. Um, and the, the, so the, the I, I, I don't mean to jump ahead, but um, maybe we're getting to it. But the issue, I believe, is that this is that she forged Nicole Medina's initials. And that's not the only person's initials that were allegedly forged by Annie. That Dukin did. Yeah. Um, that Dukin did. Um, uh, I think there's, there's indications that she forged um, multiple uh, people's uh, um, uh, initials, including Kate Corbett. Um, and Daniel Renchkowski and Nicole Medina. Well, um, and the evidence officer, right? That's right. how she got busted. That's she, how she, she got did busted. it in the lab. But what's interesting is I'm reading this referral, which is written by OIG, right? It's written by uh, Audrey Mark, um, and it's on Glenn Green's, uh letterhead. And I assume he's CC'd. Yes, he is. And then when you read Mr. Cunha's report, on behalf of OIG that was written only a few months later, right? So this referral is December 11th, 2013. There's a, a OIG report in April March. of 2014 or March, late March. So I get to the paragraph where they talk about this meeting and I wanna see the one where, where it says she, Piero reported to her, she claimed on, that she told Chilean, Chilean Senator Oath never told me, you know, uh, you be the judge of whether we have another sole bad actor, right? Um, right? Or another bad actor. Instead, they just omit that. They just say that there's no evidence that she reported Dukin's other misconduct to anyone, including anyone in human resources, labor relations, or commissioner's office. Well, why don't they say, and Chilean, <laughs> right? So, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's um, omitting from a report some a very important fact that helps you interpret the rest of the report. So I'm not saying go out of your way to, 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 to take shots at people, but I'm saying you wrote a paragraph about this because you thought it was important and you omit from that paragraph something that was in an earlier referral, criminal referral letter. Sort of, I think, inexcusable. Oh, 1000%. I mean, the, the whole thing is inexcusable. They have criminal referrals for all these people and somehow they are for a number of different people and somehow they you know just in they told the media and everyone in this case that dukin was the sole bad actor well here's here's the the, the issue 
Under the enabling statute, it says any referrals made under the section shall not be made public, right? So that's a statutory, um, uh, that's a statutory issue. Defendant's constitutional right to exculpatory evidence always trumps statutes. Um, and so I can understand why they would wanna keep their uh, mouths shut about referrals because again, they're not supposed to be public, but what you do when you're confronted either by the media or in court or wherever you say, I can't comment on that. Instead, they do, they do totally opposite. They both omitted uh, relevant information, Brady material for defendants um, in the report itself. They didn't have to mention the fact that she got referred, but they could have mentioned the basis for the referral in there because uh, that was Brady material. Uh, but, you know, you, you absolutely cannot go into court and say uh, we made no referrals, right? Right. Well, but you, you, you're, you, so your point, I agree with your point, Chris, but I would say that the, that the referral is the thing that's secret, not the underlying right. facts. Right, right, right. Exactly. So, so elsewhere in the report, they say things like, um, uh, Dukin said X, we looked at it and couldn't confirm X, and therefore it appears that Dukin lied. They, they don't use the word lie. I think I checked, but uh, they might say like gave uh, inaccurate testimony or said something that appeared not to be true or I don't know. But, you know, they, they comment on it. And so now to turn around to Nassif and not mention in the report that she sat in front of a state trooper and said, I told Chilean something mm -hmm. that Chilean said, no one told me. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. And when you, when, when you see that, that definitely focuses your attention as a reader. Now you understand where the, the fault lines are. But when you read this paragraph, and there's another paragraph that has to be read in tandem, which is the one where they, Chilean goes into the meeting thinking he was going to be investigating, or DPH was going to be investigating the May breach along with the June breach. And then it says he walked out of that meeting thinking that DPH would not be investigating the May breach, right? What happened at that meeting? That's all they said. He walked in thinking one thing, he walked out thinking another thing. And, and I've, I've been uh, um, both on, on both ends of enough legal documents to, that are written like that to know when someone is obfuscating. And so to me, it's not just sort of, uh, 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 oh, you know, we didn't have space, right? To put this little fact in. It's, it's hugely glaring that this fact was omitted when you thought it was important enough to make a criminal referral. So not to keep banging that drum, but that's just galling to me. 1000%. And th this is the inspector general. Like, I, I mean, come on. Uh, it, it just, it, it's, it's unreal. It's unreal to me. Like it, it's, and, and they've been lying and lying and lying and lying about it for years. They keep doubling down, tripling down, doing all these stupid investigations for nothing uh, where, they, where they've known all along like who's to blame. And they, they will bend over backwards and spend hundreds of millions of dollars to cover it up. It is a, a disgrace. Yeah, I mean, like, think if um, they were investigating a police department because of an unjustified officer shooting and the police chief lied to 
investigators about what his officers had told them. I mean, that would be huge news. And it would be very important in cases coming out of that department going forward. Right. Well, I had a, you know, not to sidetrack, but I had a police shooting case and the, uh, uh, against the state trooper. And the state trooper said that he filled out a use of force report, which is mandatory anytime you use any degree of force, including fatally shooting somebody. Um, and he, his testimony under oath was, I filled out a use of force report. And the custodian of records of the state police says, no such report has ever been um, submitted. And this is done electronically, so it can't be, you know, misplaced. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, uh, was he immediately fired? No. Was he eventually maybe demoted and then maybe asked to retire politely? Uh, you know, who knows? But, um, but, but I agree. I mean, this is it's it's one thing to 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 lie, maybe you know, on your resume or in some other context. But this is lying to a a police officer who's investigating you know, the, the whole circumstance. So to me, that is a big deal um, and certainly should have made it into the report. True on all accounts. So um, next, why don't we do the, the Molly and the Foxy? We've, we've been over the BZP stuff. Um, I think th there, there was, like we said, there was um, a criminal referral for Charles Salemi and quote other chemists at the lab. They they didn't for for calling BZP class uh, E when it wasn't. We did a whole episode on class E, but here is uh, here is another criminal referral for the Molly and the Foxy stuff, pursuant to Massachusetts Massachusetts General Laws Chapter Twelve. Um, section 10, I am I am writing to you to report that I have reasonable grounds. Oh, this, by the way, this was sent November 6, 2014. So this is almost a year after the referral, the first one for Julianne Nasif. They keep sending criminal referrals. And it's, it's not full a year after the first report is issued, and it's before the second report is issued. Right. So this was to um, Sheila M. Calkins. Uh, uh, we have I that I have reasonable grounds to believe that there has been a violation of state criminal law by former Hinton Drug Lab employees related to their reporting, a, reporting a controlled substance of the drugs, uh, methylone, known as Molly, uh, and methoxy. Uh, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce that. There's multiple eyes, <laughs> also known as Foxy. So Molly and Foxy, right? Molly and Foxy are drugs most uh, commonly used to create a form of ecstasy. Ecstasy is typically created using the drug 3-4, oh, you know, forget it. it or it, it's MDMA is what, what it's called. MDMA is classified under the Massachusetts General Laws as a Class B controlled substance. Molly and Foxy are federally classified as a Schedule One controlled substance. However, Molly was not a controlled substance under the Massachusetts General Laws until a com until the Commonwealth amended its laws to make it <coughs> a Class C um, substitute with that effective January first, twenty thirteen. The Commonwealth has not yet amended its drug laws to make Foxy illegal. 
So based on our limited review, it appears that when police seized pills that looked like ecstasy, they assumed it was MDMA and obtained charges related to the possession of a Class B substance. At the Hinton Drug Lab, when chemists analyzed this evidence and reached a finding all prior to January 1st, 2013 of Molly and Fo or Foxy, they issued a certificate of analysis certifying that the substance was a Class E subsection B drug, which is a prescription drug other than those included uh, in classes A, B, C, D, or subsection A of this class. There is evidence to suggest that chemists, again, chemists, at the at the Hinton lab knew that these types of substances were not controlled substances under Massachusetts law, but caused certificates of analysis to be issued stating that each was an illegal Class E substance. The OIG is not aware of any defendants who were convicted of Class E charges related to Molly and Foxing. The OIG is, however, aware of defendants who were convicted of Class B crimes related to Molly and Foxy. Wow. And read that footnote. Sometimes defendants were convicted of Class B crimes when the parties relied solely on police report instead of certificate of analysis. Wow. So, um, Chris, what, uh, what does that sentence mean? It sounds like on occasion people were convicted because they were, there's a arrest report. So yeah, said, they think it's ecstasy, which is class B, and then or they when say it's, it's they they otherwise say it's class right, meaning class you're B, relying yeah. on something that's in a police report to right. support a class B conviction. When the cert that if if a cert did issue and and if it correctly identified the drug, um, it would have Molly or Foxy. We it know would have been not a controlled substance. It would be an E, right? They they would falsely Look, certify it as class E. So, um, yeah, but it, so that I mean, if, if they issued the certificate properly, it would have said not a controlled substance under state Correct. law. But it, but, but when we, they we did, it said this is a class E, so the person still faces criminal penalties, right? So, we know that when they did issue certs for Molly Foxy or BZP, that they did it, um, under class E, which is incorrect, or at least at that time, um, with respect to, uh, Molly. Uh, and uh, the, the the biggest sentence in here, there is evidence to suggest that chemists at the Hinton lab knew that these types of substances were not controlled substances under Massachusetts law. Right. Right. That's that's malfeasance. Right. Yeah. That that is knowingly that is knowingly sending someone to jail who you know should not be going to jail. And being a chemist, a, a independent chemist. That's what like people like excuse it like, oh, well, you know, it's like, no, all they're supposed to be doing is testing the evidence and saying, okay, this drug is this and it's this class and not and being completely independent and not caring about this stuff. But clearly they want these people to go to jail. And we read off that those emails between Dukin in a previous episode with Dukin and Farrakh, ironically, the two major players in this are the linchpin in this stuff. They, they both said, oh, I'm going to be – they didn't say this exactly, but I'm going to be lying on the stand about the classifications of these drugs. I can't believe – I can't remember what we lie about for this one. Is it – do we call it Class E for, for BZP? And, and yeah, I think Farrakh said that. 
And then Dukin was like, oh, yes, classy. Was it was it Dukin asking Farrakh or Farrakh asking Dukin? I can't remember. Yeah, I just remember one of them said, like, the Massachusetts state legislature is so slow. Yeah. Yeah, you know how they are with keeping up with the times, I believe the quote was, right? Something like that. And it's like, yeah, you know how they are with making laws that we have to abide. You know, darn those lawmakers. They're so out of touch. So here's a problem that I have. So, And I don't know the source of these documents, meaning who actually was ordered to produce these? Was it OIG or the, the Inspector office? General's office was ordered to produce these in the consolidated Middlesex cases. The Middlesex DA's office had two ADAs looking through many more documents than this. And then uh, eventually a whole batch of documents was turned over to defense attorneys. And then these select documents uh, out of many, many, is my understanding, got flagged for release because of their importance. And okay. also that's when CPCS intervened in the case. So what's interesting about this one, unlike the prior one, um, even though the formatting is, is similar, um, the big difference is it's not on um, the OIG letterhead um, and it is not, there's no signature, there's no squiggle above Audrey Mark's name. And so I can't tell looking at this if it was in fact sent. Mm. Now, many offices keep a uh, electronic copy um, of what they send in addition to a, a, an actual photocopy or scanned image. Um, so maybe that's what this is, or maybe this is what somebody wrote and then they never sent it. And I'm not sure which is which is better or worse, right? Because if you believe uh, whatever the, uh, the exact language, Chris, that you read from, if you have reason to believe that a crime was committed, you have to send this letter, right? Yeah, you can't shall, write it. Shall report. Yeah, you, shall. you can't write the letter and then say, you know, oh, I'll put it in my desk drawer and reflect on it, right? Um, some people do that. They write a letter and they don't send it because they want to think about yeah. it. The famous example is Abraham Lincoln after the Battle of Gettysburg, right? right. Where he right. shit all over uh, George Meade because he didn't destroy the uh, Confederate Army after they uh, destroyed Pickett's Charge. <clears throat> he called him an idiot, or, you know, in, in not so many words, but like, was like, how could you not kill them? And then he just, after he got shot, they found it in his desk drawer. Right. So, so, but this one, so either it was sent. And I don't know, maybe they don't, OIG doesn't have a signed copy, which, you know, maybe that's just poor record keeping, or they didn't send it. And I think that's a problem. Oh, major. It, dude, think about this. Think about the extent of this behavior, Elias. I mean, Chris hit it right on the head. It's like, what the fuck? Like, why are they sending people to jail knowingly? Like, that is intent. Like, and that blows up and there's another that just destroys another life. So this is why they might not send it because right. they said Dukin, they don't know why Dukin did what she did, changed negative samples into positives, but they know it definitely wasn't to help prosecutors win cases, right? right. Um, why would you write that? Why would you say, I don't know why someone did it? Or you would just leave it at that, wouldn't you? Like, why would you go the extra mile and say, oh, it definitely wasn't to do this because it was, because it absolutely was. That's why she was doing it. I've said it a million times here. 
that's why she was doing what she was doing and and she was not alone well, that's why the whole lab were. was doing what it was yeah. doing. You know, that's uh, exactly reason, that was its reason for existing right um, that that's so the whole it. basis of its existence was to send people to jail and and not test evidence or you know like do do the just do the bare minimum get a, a flimsy scientific justification in case anyone like pushes it um and, and just get the stuff across and it worked for 30 years <laughs> it's it's crazy how the scam how, how deep well, the scam went by the way two little funny uh, related kind of footnotes one um you know there's there's been some suggestion um that uh, and i can't remember who who said this but that at some point bzp used to be available for prescription and i looked that up and and that ain't true that was uh, the state police director state i can i can get that email again yeah. you know it was never subject to prescription and then the second thing is the exit the, the fact i mean we haven't really covered sort of what this is all actually about you know in the context of a war on drugs but there's pretty good evidence that the war on drugs and and the the, the scheduling of drugs has been driven by a hysteria and b the government's interest in expanding its portfolio of what's considered illegal and bzp was was added federally based on a misreading of evidence that suggested that it was i forget if it's 10 or 100 times more powerful than it actually is so it's actually weaker than stuff that that you can buy at cvs and but people freaked out when they saw something that was incorrect it was a mistake and and then there's a predictable wave of you know making it illegal federally going state by state and that's what's driving a lot of this i mean so it shouldn't be lost on anyone that we're talking about whatever foxy is and whatever molly is right which is right. so far removed from what when people think of drugs you know they think of heroin and they think of cocaine um, and we can debate about the legalization or illegal status of those things but we're also talking now about stuff like molly and foxy and bzp and this is this is there's no end to this process right the the laws are getting bigger not smaller right maybe we take for every marijuana that might make it out um which it hasn't fully we're adding way more so right. this problem is 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 one of our, uh, of our creation and it's just it's growing in the areas that are that are fraught with danger it and the bottom line with this making this stuff illegal does not stop people from using it that that's almost a stupid thing to say because it's so obvious but clearly it's not obvious to to the state and like they, they don't stop it they don't stop it so what's the point the point is it, it's really scary what this is this is about control this is about you know a government agencies bending over backwards to send innocent people to, into prison and you know like it, it's it's a whole whole thing about cluster f getting um, fines and fees for the court and for the da's offices exactly and police departments cha-ching 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 right. you, you can go into i think even youtube and find <coughs> hysterical videos many of which were prepared by the fbi um uh or the department of the bureau of narcotics saying that that people on marijuana were like became like axe murderers you oh know, yeah and like mass murderers and they'd go Ooh. around in this like complete state of like psychopathic mania dude reefer like, madness have you ever met somebody on marijuana i know the only person like, in danger is the bag of cheetos near them i mean exactly 
or the Chinese <laughs> delivery, you know, like, I mean, give me a break. I mean, those are stereotypes, but they, you know, it's pretty, pretty darn accurate. And, and we all know that now we've all been to college, et cetera. And, and you see it and it's just, it's such a joke. And, and it, what it does is undermines the authority of these people, but they don't care because this is all about them getting money. Like Julianne Nasif lying to get those federal grants is, is a window into what this is all about. This is all about justification getting for getting money for, uh, you know, there to fund all these police departments, DA's offices, you know, they, they just get a ton of dough for this stuff. So here I pulled up the um, email, an email from Peter Pirro. We've been over this, but it's, it's worth repeating now. July 13th, 2011. This was from Peter Pirro to Julianne Nasif on MDPV was the subject. Hi, Julie. We probably have, um, we possibly have MDPV one of the bath salts. DEA diversion considers it an analog of MDEA schedule one. I have three questions. How should we be reporting federally scheduled one drugs that do not appear in mass laws, i.e. BZP? How should we report schedule one analogs, i.e. MDPV? Is this addressed anywhere in the Controlled Substance Act? The Massachusetts Class C section only mentions prescription drugs other than those included in classes A, B, C, D, and E subsection. Thanks, Peter. Uh, she responded four minutes later and said, I would report the compounds with no legal interpretation and leave it up to the DAs. That was Julianne. That's Mason. not what they did. And no. then and then Peter Pirro forwarded that email to everyone in the fucking Hinton lab. Yeah, and they still reported it as a. And they still did team. it. Right. They so still either, did it. So either so they're who's... they're all functionally illiterate, or uh, that wasn't the real order, right? Or uh, they did what she said. I would report it and with no legal interpretation and leave it up to the DAs. And the DAs said report it as classy. But the cert said classy. Yeah, the the cert will say that. Yeah, yeah I know, but if they ask the DA, you know. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think they just did it. I mean, that that wasn't in the OIG supplemental. What if D, that DA said something? It doesn't mean they. Well, didn't of course not, it. dude. Yeah. They, they they bend over backwards to protect them. They right. don't they don't want them to to get into trouble. Here she's saying to ask the DAs. Like, I mean, there's we have no evidence that they actually did. All we have evidence of, and you want me to read the Duke email? Well, it, yeah, it almost doesn't matter because. The DA gets the cert, right? Yeah. Cert says class E. And I can't believe that none of the DAs figured out that that's wrong. So right. even if they didn't verbally, uh, not not just authorize it, but but mandate it, they would still receive something that they knew to be programmatically false. And they didn't, they, they, they kept their mouths shut. So I, right. th I think in that sense, the, the, the blame is shared not just with the labs, but with the prosecutors, because they were handling these certs and they saw what they said. Right. And like, shouldn't they know the laws? <laughs> you know, I mean, being a DA, shouldn't you, you see this and be like, oh, wait a minute, hold on. This is, this is classy. They're saying I think it's in the job. I think it's somewhere in the job description. Well, I mean, what you actually do is you look at the certificate and then if you have any questions about it, say, 
oh, let me check the general laws. And then they list all the chemicals in there that fall under classes A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, yeah, I think that you're, um, I'm guessing the practice would be, especially for uh, the, um, the assistant attorney, uh, district attorney who's gonna try a case, that you at some point sit down and you actually look just to make sure you don't make a fool of yourself, right? You would right. look just to make sure you have the right schedule, right? I haven't, some people I'm sure have memorized like which one is cocaine and which one's heroin. But every time I see them, I'm like, oh, I, that sounds like uh, confusing and I'd never memorize it. So I would always check just to make sure I don't have the wrong schedule. So here we go, Elias. Um, Kenneth, from Kenneth Gannon to Guy Valero, which is, Guy Valero is not a card shark in Las Vegas or, you know, a fake, a fake alias. He's, these are two um, mass state police uh, chemist directors. And um, on August 16th, 2011, there is an email from Kenneth Gannon to Guy Valero that said, MGL, uh, Massachusetts General Laws, Controlled Substance, Class E, Catch-All Clause. Hey, Guy, <laughs> here is what I put together. I hope this helps. Periodically, quote-unquote, new drugs suddenly show up on the streets here in Massachusetts and around the country. Abuse of these, quote, new drugs then result in individuals showing up in hospital emergencies rooms. These new drugs, he, he quoted new every single time, drugs also start showing up in our laboratories for analysis. Here are a couple examples of new drugs that have made the news recently. Something being sold as bath salts, which has been found to contain a chemical called um, MDPV. This drug is a stimulant. Uh, Methacatanone, um, commonly known as CAT. This drug is another stimulant and is related to the active ingredient in the African plant material called Khat, K-H-A-T. As of today, MDPV is not specifically controlled under Massachusetts law and is not controlled federally. If we identify this drug in the lab, we report it as not a controlled substance, quote unquote. The classification of this drug is not a problem. CAT has been in the news recently too. However, CAT was placed on the Federal Controlled Scheduled Substance Act as a class one controlled substance back in 1993. CAT is not specifically controlled under Massachusetts law either. What we have been doing for this drug and others that the DEA has taken action on and placed them on onto the federal controlled substance schedule is call these drugs a class C controlled substance under the Massachusetts general laws, chapter 94, section 31. This guy is admitting to breaking the law, my friends. Here is the definition of the federal scheduled one controlled substance. Uh, you want me to read that or do you care? So substances in this schedule have a high potential for abuse, have no current currently accepted medical use and treatment in the United States, and there's a lack of accepted safety for use of the drug or other substances under medical supervision. Some examples of substances listed in Schedule 1 are heroin, and uh, lyseric acid, LSD, marijuana, peyote, um, and ecstasy. 
Please note that this definition was taken from the following DEA page. Here is the thought process we use to determine the compounds that the DEA has placed on Schedule 1 are controlled substances under mass law. For any substance that has been determined to be controlled substance under federal guidelines in Schedules 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5, and which is not specifically listed under Chapter 94C, Subsection uh, 31, of the Mass General Laws, Class C has the following wording, which I call the catch-all clause. Prescription drugs other than those included in classes A, B, C, D, and subsection A of this class. Chapter 94C, section one, is the definitions uh, section for chapter 94C. Here is the definition for prescription drug. Prescription drug is any drug in all, any and all drugs which uh, the manufacturer or distributor has in compliance with the federal law and regulations place the following, quote, caution, federal law prohibits dispensing without prescription, end of quote. I see this as a manufacturer, <coughs> legal or illegal, is required by law to, quote, in compliance with federal law and regulations, place the, quote, following, Caution, federal law pro prohibits dispensing without prescription or any compound uh, pr preparation or substance, which is listed as a controlled substance of the federal schedules 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5. Additionally, if a person is in possession of any compound preparation or uh, substance which is listed on schedule uh, federal schedules 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5 without a prescription, then under mass law, you are in possession of a Class E controlled substance. Call if you want to need to. Thanks, Ken Gangan. Well, I mean, we, I think we covered this before, but the, the absurd flaw in that whole line of reasoning is that the, the there's a requirement for drugs that have been in compliance with federal law approved um, for uh, introduction to interstate commerce uh, and are available on prescription. Um, and, and that's a requirement to say that. Uh, if you're not approved by the FDA, there's no requirement to say that. And so this idea that illegal manufacturers to be, <laughs> could have any compliance with federal law and that that compliance would include putting a disclaimer on a product that they're, they're not allowed to introduce into interstate commerce, period, um, is kind of absurd um, and is a, a, a real tortured attempt to get around what's a pretty obvious, I think a, a child could understand it. If you're supposed to have a prescription and you don't, then that's class E. And if a drug doesn't need a prescription or is not available for a prescription, then it can't be class E, right? I, I don't think this needs to be overthought, but... Um, <laughs> Well, they bend over backwards to overthink it because they want their justification for locking people in jail for any and all substances that they get arrested for. They don't want to be in court and say, oh, uh, this is actually not illegal. You know, like, I mean, they never want to. <clears throat> so we shouldn't have arrested you, you know. But let me add, going back to this referral. So just thinking about this a little further, um, I presume that OIG could press a button or two and get a list of every chemist who certified something falsely as class E. And then yep. wouldn't you just append that, that, that list to your referral and say, these people lied. Why are you giving, why are you telling the attorney general's office, you go figure it out? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the, the hidden drug lab evidence database it had the chemist names, the defendant evidence sample number, and then what the uh, what the class finding was, and then what the um, drug name was. So you just filter by the drug name for something that you know that they were certifying improperly, and you do it uh, for each year you have a spreadsheet for, and it'll pop out the list of names in like two or three minutes. Right. And you might even get a case number somehow, right? I think with some work, you can generate case numbers. And you have to match up the drug receipt and the police department with the case, but yeah. Okay, so there's some work there and then and then maybe you could figure out if somebody testified. I mean, my, my suspicion is the majority of these cases, no chemist testified, um, but I don't, I don't know that. But that would be interesting if we could find whether any chemists falsely uh, um, testified under oath that this the, any of these were class E drugs, that would be interesting. Mm -hmm. Not that so, it matters, right? A certificate is under oath, right? It's it's a it's a it's a sworn um, mm -hmm, certification. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And remember back uh, to episode was it one, uh, uh, Jamie, um, where we listened to uh, uh, General Coakley uh, try to argue that this is like a machine. T talking to you it's an infallible machine telling you it's a class e drug you don't even need the chemist yeah right you just need the cert in um, front of the supreme court yeah in front of the supreme court and now we find out well you i i guess you do need the chemist um and here's why you didn't want the chemist yeah here's why you tried desperate you took this all the way to the supreme court because you knew they were lying their ass off for you <laughs> They were and they were locking people in jail who shouldn't be there, and you didn't want that mess with, and you didn't. And this whole case came essentially from that. So, do you guys want to do uh, the O'Brien stuff, the Elizabeth O'Brien one? Or this how about the? We just mentioned briefly. There's a very similar email um, from August 18th, 2014 that does look like it was actually sent and received because there is a signature on there uh, about BZP, similar to Foxy. Uh, right. It's the same technical grounds, uh, but it says, let's see, if we could just compare these really quickly. Um, this one actually lists Charles Salemi. Yeah. So I think that's the big important piece um, so, uh, well, because he gave direct instructions, right? We have one of those emails where he is like, you know, essentially call this classy or whatever. And this was going back to 2004, right? But wasn't that a, a long time ago for, for Charles Salemi saying that? I can't remember the date, but, uh, let me just, the highlights from this one email, it's almost the exact same. Uh, analysis, you know, that there's not, it's not illegal under state law. Uh, federal law may say something different. And then the chemist just decided that, you know, we'll call it illegal under state law. But uh, this was the big quote. There is evidence to suggest that chemists, including Hinton Drug Lab Supervisor Charles Salemi, knew that BZP was not a controlled substance under Massachusetts law but caused certificates of analysis to be issued stating that BZP was an illegal class E substance. Uh, and then also based on these facts, 
the Office of the Inspector General has reasonable grounds to believe there ha that there has been a violation of state criminal law by Hinton Drug Lab chemists, plural, including Charles Salemi, specifically that they willfully misled a prosecutor and or defense attorney in violation of Mass General Law Chapter 268, Section 13B, by issuing certificates of analysis, reporting BZP as a Class E substance. So I think the, the really big takeaway uh, is that they did touch upon these in the supplemental report, but they kept on saying Dukin was the sole bad actor in their press releases, in their reports, in court, everywhere they could. But by this point in time, they preferred the lab director as well as the lab supervisor. And they had reason to believe that other chemists knew that they were improperly and illegally certifying uh, evidence samples as a controlled substance when they weren't. Right. The, the key word there is new, right? New, so, yeah. So, so let me and chemists knew. Now, uh, let me read what the supplemental report said. And you tell me if this sounds like the same people writing uh, this, because it doesn't to me. It says that in 2011, chemists internally discussed how to certify substances that were federally classified, uh, scheduled, but not classified in Massachusetts. Um, this is what you referenced, Jamie, that one chemist, so just one chemist, asked Julie, they don't mention name member in this report. This is the one where they forgot that you could actually use people's real name. Asked Julianne Nasif, uh, who was the director, but they leave her name out, about how to report BZP um, and that she had uh, uh, instructed them to report only the identity of the substance without cert certifying it fell within any class. Then this is the sentence. Even thereafter, in November 2011, so this is like a few months later, certain chemists, which ones? Could we name them? I don't know. How do we do that with a keyboard? Um, uh, <laughs> remained unsure of how to proceed and asked the supervisor, that's Mr. Salemi, um, of the drug lab, uh, uh, oh, uh, the supervisor of the drug lab, what the drug lab's policy was. I thought we clarified what the policy was, right? For certifying BZP since it was federally scheduled but not controlled. Chemists continue to certify BZP as a class C substance through April 2012. So this sentence without any citation or support says that chemists were confused and wanted to know what the policy was. And this criminal referral says they knew mm -hmm. that it was illegal to report, that, that it was that you couldn't report this as classy. They knew. There were no reference to confusion. Um, and, uh, and, and then the, there's a footnote, by the way, uh, OIG, despite millions of dollars was, un I added that part in, was unable to determine whether the supervisor provided any response. So Mr. Salemi was asked how to certify this or what's our policy, excuse me. And they couldn't figure out how he responded. Chirp, 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 chirp. I he mean, that's crazy, them. but but we, we were able to figure out that there should be a criminal referral. So uh, again, the supplemental report, which deals with this, uh, 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 tells a very different version of what they were telling the, the uh, attorney general's office when they had a duty to make criminal referrals. Uh, mm -hmm. And and I think keeping with the, um, the lone bad actor um, meme, uh, they left out the part where chemists knew they were falsely certified things as class E and instead um, put in this sort of like revisionist history 
that it was because they were confused. Yeah, and this is exactly where they might get into trouble with the BBO, right? Because these reports were submitted as attachments to hundreds of criminal cases. And uh, again, they, they had representatives from their offices go in, represent similar things to the court on, on transcripts. And uh, it, it differs completely with their internal communications with the attorney general's office. Ilias, what was missing out of your, uh, out of, out of the OIG's statement about Julianne Nasif, what, what, out of her response, what was missing? It said, uh, "Oh, uh, 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 leave it, uh, leave it up to prosecutors." They left it out. <laughs> right. They left it out. Like, well, you don't want to make this thing get worse, right? Exactly. <laughs> but think about that, dude. That is a very important piece of information. Leave right, it right. up to the DAs. She well, the told investigation, them to leave it. And then a, that was, and it was also left out that saying leave it up to the DAs was forwarded to the entire lab. She didn't, she responded to him and then Piero forwarded it to the whole lab. Right. I mean, it, uh, so, right. So they don't say who the chemist was who sought guidance. Right. Right. So that's interesting. And, and so therefore the implication is that that chemist either didn't tell the other chemists what she said, or maybe that chemist did and, and people had a hard time believing um, uh, that. Um, but uh, there's, it's, there's a suggestion that more chemists then confronted Mr. Salemi and it's strange that they say they were unable to determine whether he provided any response, right? I mean, there's a, there's a patented technique of finding the answer to that uh, conundrum by asking the person, <laughs> "Yeah, did you I provide a would, response?" I think he would be legally obliged to respond to you, right? I mean, did they think? Did it occur to them that they could just ask these people? Um, but the, you could also sit the prosecutors down, right? I, I believe the OIG can can talk to prosecutors' offices, right, and say, "Hey, what did you know about this issue?" And you know that uh, be that would be interesting, but you know doesn't they they seem to sort of compartmentalize this thing as as much as possible into Hinton. Um, the BZP thing is you know is separate from the Annie Duke and stuff, um, yeah. and it's it, you know now we don't have chemists don't have names anymore in 2016, um, and uh, and and things suggestive that that people knew they were making false certifications, uh, that is left out of the report. And in its place, there's this suggestion that maybe everybody was just really confused. Right. Maybe, or maybe that this was a whole scam operation and Annie Dukin was just the most blatant of them all. And uh, she got tossed under the bus because she was doing too good of a job. I mean, if you if you look at the emails between her and prosecutors, they absolutely adored her. When she said she she wasn't testifying anymore um, to a Norfolk County DA, that DA was like, "No, no, no! I need you, all caps. I need you." <laughs> Why did she need one chemist over another? Weren't they just manually doing this work? Aren't they interchangeable? 
or was one a professional fraudster who who specialized in locking people up? Um, so let's let's do August nineteenth, twenty fourteen. Um, this was uh, this was a draft. We we all think that this was probably a draft, and, and it will be pretty clear why. Um, this was to uh, this was sent to Sheila, or supposed to be sent to Sheila M. Calkins, the Deputy Attorney General. Dear Ms. Calkins, pursuant to Massachusetts General Laws Chapter 12A, Subsection 10, I am writing to you to report that I have reasonable grounds to believe that there has been a violation of state criminal law by former Hinton Drug Lab Evidence Officer, su Evidence Supervisor Elizabeth O'Brien. <coughs> On date, they don't list the date, Miss O'Brien testified under oath at the Office of the Inspector General. At that time, Miss O'Brien testified that by the time she met with lawyers from the Department of Public Health in December of 2011, she was aware that Annie Dukin blank. That's where it ends. She was aware that Annie Dukin, <coughs> based on these facts. <laughs> The Office of the Inspector General has readable grounds to believe that there has been a violation of state criminal law by Ms. Julianne Nasif, specifically that she willfully misled a police officer in violation of Mass General Law, blah, blah, blah. <coughs> so what? <laughs> they said this, – This also came – it looks like it was drafted the day after the August 18th referral letter regarding BZP. So whatever that's worth. But yeah, it looks like they didn't finish this. They were looking at Elizabeth O'Brien again, the drug lab evidence office supervisor. And uh, for some reason that's not fully laid out, believed that she had violated the law as well. It's unclear well, if this was ever finished and sent to the AG's office or what, but. But just to, you know, speaking as a, as a lawyer, um, the title of this document says referral of criminal matter um, M-Dash uh, Elizabeth O'Brien. Mm -hmm. And this is not something that you just draw up for every person and then say, right. yeah, we'll delete the ones that don't apply, right? That's not how lawyers work. Um, the way it works is there's a period of time where you look at things, um, look at documents, talk to witnesses, read statements, and then there's usually a meeting, right? It's very rare that even a referral is the product of one person's uh, uh, thinking, right? Usually there'll be a meeting uh, where you discuss whether there has to be a criminal referral. And then usually the output of that meeting is, yes, there should be. And then someone is tasked with writing the referral letter. And so this appears to be what someone did um, probably after about an hour of work they they got as far as she uh we're aware that she did blank right and we're and then they never got around to typing the thing that you know uh formed the basis for the referral um right. so to well, me the, the the mere existence of this is pretty eyebrow raising um and i think it's a nice segue to one of the mysteries of hinton which is elizabeth o'brien's relationship with annie dukin Yep. And with everything that went on in that lab. So at some point back in maybe 2008, O'Brien and Dukin were in the same room. 
And O'Brien was, I, I think, a, I forget which is more senior, chemist uh, three is more senior, mm -hmm. I think. Yes. So she was yes. a chemist three. Dukin, I think, was a chemist two, and there was somebody else in the room. And O'Brien left because she got promoted to uh, an evidence room supervisor. And she left right at the time that my client's case rolled around when it turns out that Annie Dukin is now unsupervised. And according to the OIG, that, that caused some ripples because I think other chemists thought she should be supervised. So there was that issue of her not being supervised, O'Brien being the former supervisor sort of leaving, and then that void not being filled. And then O'Brien becomes one of the evidence officers uh, and one of the few people with the key uh, supposedly to the safe where they, where they kept drugs. And also one of the few people in a position to look at um, how um, drugs were checked out in Foxboro. And so naturally she becomes the focus of what did she know and when did she know it about Annie Dukin? And I looked at the report, I can't tell you how many times, um, I sat through a trial um, where uh, there was testimony from uh, the chemists, I think maybe from her, I'm not sure, I can't remember now. Um, she was a defendant in my case. I couldn't tell you what she knew or what she didn't know because you couldn't get a straight answer from her. She sort of knew stuff, but she sort of didn't know stuff. She was part of a lot of meetings where they were concerned about her volume, Annie Dukin's volume, but she was also constantly assuring people that Annie Dukin's volume was fine. So I think the fact that O'Brien was looked at is hugely important because she was sort of the Rosetta Stone to figuring out what was going on in Hinton and that never happened. The OIG never did it. Looks like they started to with the drafting of this referral letter. And then I think somebody realized if you, this is me speculating now. So um, I'm, everybody put on your speculation hats, but uh, I think that somebody thought if they actually do this referral, things will re really fall apart quickly, especially for the sole bad actor narrative. Right. Their favorite. And I mean, that that hinged on everything that they did, you know, like, um, it, and this is just so weird because it says underneath the criminal referral uh, for O'Brien, it says that she was aware that Annie Dukin and then literally nothing else. That's where everything drops off. And it said, based on these facts, which is nothing, the Office of the Inspector General has reasonable grounds to believe that there has been a violation of state criminal law by Julianne Nasif. So they start off talking about O'Brien and they end saying that something about Julianne Nasif. Well, oh, looks like yeah, I can, I can count that. <laughs> That's the magic of copy and paste. Yeah, that right. seems like copy and paste. Yeah, saving saving the document as a new document. So I, yeah, I, yeah. I'm almost certain that that's verbatim um, from the first other letter. Yeah. So how'd you like your life um, hanging in the balance and knowing that it was just a copy and paste job? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that's the, the 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 dirty secret of law is that that type of error happens all the time, um, and is frequently caught. Um, and I won't name uh, any judges, um, but even, you know, you get jury instructions in your case sometimes and it will have the name of some other person. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's because it was taken from another case. And I actually don't fault, you know, I, I'm amazed at how Superior Court judges pull together jury instructions um, in a short amount of time without a lot of help, without the staff that the lawyers sometimes have. 
So I'm not faulting anyone. I've done it. Every lawyer does it. It's just what happens. Um, and hopefully if you proofread something carefully, you'll catch it. And I I have no doubts that OIG, when the time came to send this letter, would have caught it. So that one, I'm not going to fault them on. I'll give them a free pass on this one. Um, but what I don't want to give them a free pass on is why they thought it was important to write a criminal referral for Betsy O'Brien. And, and then they never even spent more than five minutes on this, uh, or, you know, I said an hour, but somewhere between five minutes and an hour on a letter. All right. So here's, um, here, let, let's jump to the emails. Um, so November, Monday, November 25th, uh, 2013, a few days before Thanksgiving, 2013, this was uh, sent from Johnny Myers, Jack Myers from the inspector general's office. He's the media relations guy that talks to all the media types that call the inspector general's office. I've personally spoken to him. Um, and he, <laughs> he's told me some stuff about this, but he wanted it off the record. So I'm going to respect that. But, um, it was enlightening. Uh, Glenn, it said, uh, the, the, it, this was sent to Glenn Chuna, um, who was the inspector general, Audrey Martin, yeah. who, who investigated the hidden lab and Ellen, um, Silberman who also worked at the inspector general's office, Glenn. Milton Valencia, who covers federal court for the Globe, called. He's doing a story about Kay Corbett, who was fired for claiming to have a chemistry degree. Uh, the story is this. Corbett has acknowledged that she testified in more than 50 cases that she had a chemistry degree, which, she, which was false. The significance of this story is this. Here's the first uh, concrete example showing that the integrity of the lab and its personnel extended beyond Dukin. Is she the next Dukin? How many more are there? It sounds as if the Globe is going to play this story pretty big. Valencia is calling to see if there's any other examples we want to share. Quote, not likely. <laughs> not likely that there's not any other examples or not likely that they want to share. I'd say all. I'd say right, right, one right. of the above. I'd say the latter. <laughs> Is this an opportunity to begin adjusting public expectations about our timing? Is it an opportunity to plant the seeds about the Moses and HHS delays, the lack of voluntary cooperation, etc.? Jack Myers, senior investigator, press liaison in the office of the Inspector General. Glenn Chuna responded, uh, Kuna responded, uh, this was sent at 224. He, he responded like 16 minutes later. Let's talk later, like four. Audrey on the phone. It is not like Dukin. Corbett took enough courses for a double major in chemistry, but not an actual degree because she already had a BA in sociology. Dukin said he had, uh, she had, uh, Dukin said he had, a master's and took no courses. Corbett did misrepresent the degree, but I do think some people may think it is overblown. This is this sounds like a Donald Trump excuse. Some people think it's, it, it's may think it is overblown unless you are a defense attorney who wants to make a mountain out of a molehill. 
I do, I do not think this rises to perjury because the false statement has to be material. And since she took the courses and had the training in chemistry, it is not material. It's Glenn, Glenn Kuna, Inspector General. And then Audrey Mark responds uh, later that same day. Bottom line is there's nothing that we can share. But Jack, as background, you should know that we discovered the inaccuracy in Corbett's academic background months ago and referred it to the AG's office. They decided not to charge Corbett, Corbett likely based on, on the thinking of Glenn as set forth below. So I don't think we have that referral, but we do have another one from like a year and a half later about her actually tampering with substances. Right. You want to read that one? So, I mean, like, just that's by way of saying there's more discovery to be had here because we're still trying to figure out the true scope of all the criminal referrals and get all the documents. Right. And also, again, uh, just to highlight, uh, Jack Myers had said this, the significance of the story is this. Here is the first concrete example showing that the integrity of the lab and its personnel extended beyond Dukin. And that's from November 25th, 2013, like four months before they released their report. <laughs> so, and then June 10th, 2015 is where all of the I think we've been over we read this one before the Sasha Haynes one um, well we had was, well, so some of this appears in the supplemental report right the problem is they don't list the chemist names the reader I think is meant to believe that it's just Dukin but they, again they don't say chemist names and uh they don't mention the fact that they believe these chemists had committed crimes Right, right. That's that's uh, quite an omission. But so here, with respect to uh, so it's sample B ten zero four eight three B. With respect to this sample, Kate Corbett, as the primary chemist, made a preliminary identification of the sample as unknown. The sample was run four times on the GCMS. The first time the GCMS found venalaxifen. Uh, the second time, uh, the second run, weak oxycodone. The third time, mainly acetaminophen. The third run found acetaminophen. The fourth run found uh, dinalexifen. Annie Dukin, as a confirmatory chemist, made a finding of velaxifen. Uh, after a fourth run in the Hinton lab confirmed the sample as Velaxifine Class E. When NMS tested this sample, it found Oxycodone Class B. And then here's another Kate Corbett one. With respect to this sample, Kate Corbett is the primary chemist made up a preliminary identification of the sample known as unknown. This sample was run three times on the GCMS. The first time the GCMS found weak oxycodone. The second time the GCMS found vinylaxifene. The third time it found oxycodone. The Hinton lab confirmed the sample as oxycodone. 
uh, M NMS tested the sample and found it as venalaxifene. So those were the Kate so Corbett ones. It looks like potentially the evidence samples got switched or something like that. Or, something. Yeah. Those are weird. Yeah, yeah. But this is uh, among a list of let's see nine different samples where they found uh, peculiar errors that were suggestive of what Annie Dukin was doing, having a sample tested multiple times after uh, either nothing or a weak uh, uh, sample was found. But um, in this whole document, I thought this is the most important because this gets back to the email that you found last year about spiking the sample on purpose. So right. number three, sample D74094, with respect to the sample, Sasha Haynes, as a primary chemist, made a preliminary identification of the sample as cocaine. The sample was run five times on the GCMS. The first three times did not show the presence of cocaine. The fourth time, the GCMS showed a peak at the right time for cocaine, but it was not conclusive. There are a number of other peaks suggesting a mixture of substances. The last GCMS run indicated a strong peak at the right time for cocaine and no other visible peaks. The Hinton lab confirmed the sample is cocaine, class B. When NMS tested the sample, it found no controlled substances. Right, so that again hails back to that, that email where the inspector general's office own independently you know hired uh, outside chemists looked at it and said it, it looks like this was done nefariously right like it looks like this sample was spiked well i i want to put a little bit of time on this too because um so uh in this um so this is june 10 2015 um the referral letter mm -hmm. Uh, and um, these samples were not discussed until the supplemental report, publicly at least, mm -hmm. until 2016. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you could say, well, they maybe just found out in June 2015. But number two on the list is my client sample, right? And so, and I have the NMS report for my client sample. Now, I got this report from um, uh, Ms. M uh, Mark. I, I, I forgot that uh, it was sent to me um, my, at my old work address and uh, dated January 20th, 2016. So I thought, oh, hot off the press, NMS report, right? And I scroll to the second page and it's dated June, 2014. So they sat on my client's NMS report for over a year when the case was in suit before they bothered to send me the thing that makes them look bad and my client look like he's been telling the truth all along. Um, and so my point is that they would have known about the results from NMS for probably if they did all of them around the same time, they would have known for about a year before this referral letter was written. A year? Was your client in jail or was he out of jail for that uh, year? He was, my, uh, Oh, he was when when they in fourteen or in fifteen? In when when they sat on it for a year, like during that period. Um, I can't remember. He was in 
uh, for some period of time and then he got out and I just don't remember exactly when, but when he put the case in suit, um, he might've still been in, um, but uh, in any event that, uh, uh, you know, that that's a lot, that's, they, they, there's a lot of time that passed and they already had all the facts. Um, and bear in mind that the methodology they use to identify whether something goes to NMS or not um, involved uh, using this device called the TrueNARC. Oh um, God! True. And 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 that was that was done. Uh, I can tell you exactly when that was done. Um, the TrueNARCing was done in late 2013. So. Um, in in sometime in 2000 December 2013 somebody held used this like handheld device um called a true narc and i'm not going to say whether this machine is infallible or not but that's what they use um and it will tell you something and they went through all these samples uh and and we've talked about this this was the um you remember this was the uh 4000 samples that somehow became 600 samples and then yeah. only a few were wrong, so therefore no worries here. You remember that <laughs> that math? Yeah. Uh, well, so so by the time they true narked these samples, they would know that there was some there was already a, a, an overarching discrepancy between what the lab certified. And you're on that list to be true narked because there were multiple samples with inconsistent runs, right? And we know that those multiple runs were never disclosed. I think in any case. Uh, if someone wants to prove me wrong with a criminal case where they sent the existence of multiple tests, including negative tests, to a criminal defense attorney, um, I will uh, uh, I will buy that person dinner um, at a restaurant of maybe my choosing. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but um, I, I would love to see that because I don't believe it ever happened. So by December 2013, they generated a long list of samples for which they already knew there had been inconsistent results and multiple runs. And then they true narc those. And if they got something that was different than what they certified, now you know you have a problem. And right. those got sent to NMS and NMS tested them and apparently did so within about six months. So why did you had everything you needed? You had all the evidence you needed. Why did you that why did it take you a year? to then make a criminal referral. And it seems like just long enough that they didn't really need to worry about it, except that they could sort of mention these cases without naming any chemists in the supplemental. So it seems like time suddenly moved really slow when they started doing this part of the case. Right. Right. I don't know, guys. It's, uh, I mean, so what, what do you think is gonna come of all this? What, where do you, any predictions? Well, Chris would know better because you're sort of more plugged into what's actually going on right now. So you mentioned more documents, Chris, that this is just a subset of what was deemed to be, you know, in the public's. Um, yeah, uh, so we just Are sent there... you guys a copy of the uh, court order that released these. But uh, my understanding was that there is a much more voluminous amount of records originally. And then the DA's office found these among others and pass them on to the defense. And then these were flagged because they needed immediate release. So I don't know if there's more in the batch of stuff that the Middlesex DA's office 
gut from the inspector general's office uh, that still needs sorting through or, or that defense attorneys have or have not seen. But this is this is definitely not the end of the discovery. I mean, there, there's plenty of questions here that uh, someone with an open case or an open criminal appeal uh, want answers to want more documents. And then as far as professionally what happens, again, uh, we're going to have to look at the uh, rules of professional responsibility very carefully. But I think uh, some people at the inspector general's office may be in hot water as well as uh, John Verner, who's already uh, facing sanction from the BBO in regards to the Farrakh stuff. Um, what we didn't cover so far in the episode, uh, there's one, uh, one letter by hand delivery to John Verner uh, about these instances of misconduct. So, uh, you know, Again, it, it's one thing for the IG's office and the AG's office to say, we're not going to comment. It's a totally different thing to tell the public, defense attorneys, prosecutors in the court that we conducted a thorough investigation and found no other evidence of misconduct, right? Like they, they can charge people if they want. That's the prerogative of the attorney general and the response for not charging these people is a political one. People can vote for that AG to be AG or not, but you, you can't lie to the court, right? Right. And they did repeatedly. And John Verner is leading that chart. John Verner is at the set, the center, the epicenter of all of this. Mm-hmm. He, he was in court. He, when, when Dukin went to trial, he was the attorney general that, that, that you know was in charge of that case he investigated uh farak he investigated or he at least had evidence on farak and declined well, to he and like, kasmeric yeah and kasmeric and like he he was with her with with all that stuff he was one of those three that was uh you know recently brought up because of that whole debacle and then this whole class e thing all of that went through he sent the email to everyone saying that the the hinton lab did it the Amherst lab did it and the state police lab did it. He was the OIG contacted him and then he investigated all of that and found all three labs did this. And he put specific language in those emails saying that these drugs were not illegal. And um, I have not heard, I don't know if either of you guys have heard of anyone being contacted by the OIG or excuse me, by the um, AG's office back in 2014 when these emails went out. Uh, I don't know. I, I would assume that they contacted these people, but I don't know if any charges well, were dropped. Go ahead. I mean, the problem is you've got nine different evidence samples that they flagged. They didn't test everything in the lab. They went through this process of flagging samples that looked highly suspicious and then grabbed a handful of those, not a handful, but you know, not all of them and retested them, came up with these, which implicated certain chemists with wrongdoing, purposeful wrongdoing. And uh, you don't satisfy your Brady obligations if you're the attorney general's office, 
if you only alert those defendants and also the IG's office, if you're part of the prosecution team, when you know that those chemists worked on hundreds of other cases and the fact that they committed criminal misconduct in a specific case may be helpful to the defense in another one. It's, I don't know, dude, it's, this is crazy. I don't know where it all ends. I, I, I mean, it keeps on getting swept under, like no one from the prosecutor side besides Kesmeric has, mm-hmm. has really faced um, like something serious. Right. And, and even Kesmeric, what, what did you well, foster and Werner? Are, are yeah. Foster and Werner. Still. Did they face disbarment though? I mean that that's still going on because the the judgment of the what was it not special counsel but uh, uh, special special hearing officer that was appealed I think by both parties up to the SJC they had a hearing on it I don't think we have a decision yet. But what's the worst that could happen? Well, they could. I forget what remedies the uh, BBO was looking for, but they could increase the sanctions on each of them. Right. right. It's, I, 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 I'm not sure. Is it de novo, the review or? Um, I can't remember. Yeah. But, you know, um, I think the, the, the problem is that all of even the BBO uh, proceeding um, was done without this information being known. So, you know, I wonder if Barbara right. would have loved to yeah, have Stacey Bass would be going insane right now. Right. So, I mean, the thing that I did when 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 this stuff came out is I started going back and reading things. And one of the things I went back to read was Judge Carey's decision, mm-hmm. which was hugely pivotal in shifting the narrative um, in, in, in this in this overarching case um, from, oh, it was just about Dukin, it was just Hinton, to where you really start to see, you know, fraud on the court being quarterbacked out of the AG's office. Mm-hmm. And what's what struck me on rereading it is how absent but not absent Werner is from in the picture. So according to Werner, he's too high level to be involved in this minutia. Well, then why are you responding to emails about minutia? Why are you? <laughs> this, this, this is marked hand by hand delivery to John Werner, right? Yeah. You can't yeah. ignore the fact that says, dear Mr. Werner and close, please find supporting documentation relating to the following cases were the subject of my June 10th referral letter to your office, listing the cases, including yours, Ilias, I believe. And then for each case to do, do uh, that's not important. But yeah, it says by hand delivery. Right. And, and there was all this talk about, well, they didn't know about the Brady obligations. They did. They admitted that they did. They sent out right. communications where they said this is a Brady issue. Right. Um, and uh, and 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 they they were very they claimed there was a, some suggestion that maybe those mental health worksheets weren't so you know obvious when they were from. But they that's the first thing. These are these are people who are trained prosecutors, right? The first thing that you do when you get a piece of evidence is you look at it and you try to make sense of it. And they clearly had done that with Farak, they clearly had done that with Dukin, they clearly were doing it with other people in the lab, we didn't know about it, but, um, but when, when time, time came to alert the defense community, uh, to, to alert individual defendants, somehow now nobody knows anything. 
and and no one gets involved in the minutia and uh and 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 you know there's discrepancies in testimony that can't get reconciled and they can't figure out who Salemi, how Salemi responded to a, a request about BZP. I mean, the, the, you know, if you're going to do an investigation, do the investigation, do it all the way. Um, so to me, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm now less, less satisfied with the investigation than I was before. I've, at least before I sort of thought that there was a, a comprehensive look at Hinton. And now I'm wondering if it was intentionally not a comprehensive look um, but just was made dressed up to look comprehensive or it was comprehensive and, and, but the fruits of it were hidden, you know, and no one has looked at Amherst in a real right. way, same way, yeah. the, the, the AG's office did. And, and what they found was fucking disturbing as hell. And they like, yeah, you know what, it, or where, which one of you two were the, was it you, Chris, that asked um what's his name the guy who who did that uh uh who did all those interviews why he didn't look at Caldwell? what yeah caldwell yeah caldwell yeah he said it it wasn't his job <laughs> and, and yet he interviewed all of them <laughs> right what's crazy is without being too imaginative here <clears throat> had a, a a a fact pattern where hinton and amherst putting aside Dukin and Farrakh and everything else, both falsely certified BZP and both reported to the same division director. And the division director apparently was giving ineffective instruction, right? That right there is all you need to start turning over Amherst because there's no statement that Amherst was getting it right, right? I could see a situation where you're like, no, 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 no. Amherst was getting it right. Hinton got everything wrong. Why investigate Amherst? I, I'm not saying I would agree with it, but I could see that argument. But you have no basis to say Amherst got anything right. Everything they looked at, Amherst got as wrong or more wrong than Hinton. From the manufacturing of sta secondary standards, the, the pulling of, of discards out of the dumpster, uh, yeah. out of the trash and reusing them. The um, equipment that was out, like they got all of Hinton's hand-me-downs. They were know, the something I forgot. Amherst made, Hinton made a big deal about how we have two chemists, right? We use the two chemist system. Amherst didn't use the two chemist system. They never used the two chemist system, according to what I read. They had, they didn't have enough chemists. Amherst had a chemist smoke, smoking and baking crack in their lab. Like, like, I mean, all of the stuff that they investigated for, um, Farrakh, when they, when they did Farrakh's investigation, when you read all of, all of those, you know, transcripts and everything uh the grand jury stuff that lab was totally out of control from a compliance standpoint complete shit show it, way worse than hidden and remember uh, i think kesmeric called it a professional lab this is nothing like amherst yeah and more was, professional right you know, this was nothing like hidden it, it was a total dumpster fire and by the way Elias, we now have i read that email from the state police directors in that he said we do we call i have told our people to call these drugs class e because it's the catch-all and then they found and in that thing that you referred to they also found the state police had like 30 cases where they were calling that i'm sure it's much much more than that where they were calling drugs that they knew were not illegal illegal 
So it happened at all three of those labs. So there is justification to investigate the state police lab as well, but that has never even been broached. Right. Well, you have a couple of problems. One, you have that, right? You have state police falsely certifying BZP. Second, you have the fact that a bunch of chemists from Hinton went to the state police, right? I, I don't have the full list. Yeah. But I know that it's it's a there's a list. And so that's a problem. Uh, you know, and then you have the third problem, which is that when NMS was given samples to test, remember there were samples that were methodologically um, removed from this process. And one of the factors for exclusion was if the state police had or were about to retest. They did not want any state police sample ever to be retested by NMS because what happens if you get a discrepant result? And so to me, that tells me that you have fear because I would say, I don't care who's retested it. It's going to NMS and our state police, if they're so great, who cares? Right. right? Who cares if you retest, you're gonna get the same result, who cares? But they cared enough that they, to my understanding, my read of what the OIG did, they they prevented any sample that had ever been tested by in Sudbury to ever go to NMS. That was a that was that was a, a, a sacred rule that could not be broken. And I'm sure that any uh, 100 samples retested might get one or two that are different. So that wouldn't be even surprising if it happened. But they were very concerned about that, and I have a concern that, that I can guess why. And it could be that maybe things aren't so great there, but we don't know because nobody looked. Right. And nobody will ever look. All right. We, uh, just before we go, did we already go over this uh, short, real short email from 10 to 2014? Uh, no, go for it. Oh, just on the note that Ilias uh, brought up, Audrey Mark is saying, uh, Again, it's about the subject is BZP related question. Before I give notice to the DA's offices regarding these cases, these two cases, I feel like I should alert MSP, Mass State Police. Should I call Werner and let him know uh, he needs to handle? Should I send him a formal referral letter? Should I have a preliminary call with Kristen Sullivan to see how the MSP handled these two drugs? So, <laughs> I mean, Will's returning there as well, although I will say, as I said before, Kristen Sullivan is an excellent public servant, and um, every time I dealt with her, she was definitely above the board. So, um, but uh, they were clearly, this was in, again, 2014, thinking of the implications for the Massachusetts State Police Lab and whether or not investigating further would uh, cause problems. Well, so that's interesting, um, and, and thank you for um, uh, Pulling that out, Chris, because that um, this is this email that you just read from was sent about a month before that unsigned referral letter mm -hmm. referring to Molly and Foxy. Mm -hmm. So here you have um, Audrey Mark saying, "We're going to be doing a criminal referral." Right um, before I give notice to the DEA's office regarding these two cases, notice being a criminal referral. Um, should I call Werner and let him know oh. he needs to handle question mark? Should I send him a formal referral letter? 
So that's a that, like like almost like it's optional, right? Should I should I tell him? Should I send him a letter that, that I'm required to send him uh, about this this conduct? Uh, and then, but then there's this suggestion of soft peddling it. Maybe you know, should we let Werner handle? Should we have a preliminary call with Kristen Sullivan to see how MSP handled these two drugs? Why why does that matter? You know, uh, right? Um, maybe maybe they did the same thing. In which case, you write another referral letter, right? I mean, this is the, so so the fact they should have. Why the didn't they that, write one for the state police? They did. Right. So now the fact that we don't have proof that this referral letter was sent takes on a way more ominous tone in light of this email, because this email was sort of I've written this email. I've received this email. This is an email by somebody who's looking for an out. They don't want to do something. And then the, the, the she says, I don't want to step on anyone's toes. Step on anyone's toes is like, you know, um, a, a, a pretty laughable statement. Right. It's like I don't want someone to come after me. <laughs> you know, red faced, right? That's what this is about. I don't want to step on anyone's toes. You're not stepping. You, you have an obligation to to send a referral letter. You, you're you're obviously thinking about it. You're saying, should I send them a formal letter? And now there's a formal letter written, and we don't have proof that it was sent. So that uh, I think that's a great um, uh, uh, find, Chris. That that this this is like you know the, the 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 what was going on beneath the surface that we're not really supposed to know about. It's it's truly disturbing, the lack of accountability and the lack of accountability that there will ever be in this case. I I do not foresee it's this is we're ten years in, and like the prosecution, like prosecutors, DAs haven't even been discussed as being part of the problem with what went on at the Hinton Lab, and they were the main cause, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, there's been a documentary about the Amherst lab, but uh, not so much about prosecutors covering up stuff at Hinton. Right. And that that was, and by the way, prosecutors were in that documentary. There, there is the authentic, authenticity of that documentary. Believe what you want. The, the AG was in it, it along with other prosecutors. So yeah, you got to tell both sides, et cetera, et cetera. They will not be in it unless they sign off on the content and you can judge by that for the content of that documentary. It did do a great job showing uh, the heroic effort that uh, Luke put in, but um, yeah, it, it was, it was a soft touch and that's me being. Kind well, of... and, and the, you know, I'm not slamming anyone involved in, in that work, but uh, let's just say they were uh, aware that there was much more to the story, including secondary standards, BZP, um, you know, the, the, the fact that there were allegedly other chemists who had spike samples, um, and I, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't have the appetite for that. They wanted it to be, I think, a, a more humanistic, uh, look at a single human. Uh, and unfortunately that's, that's the easier way to sell a story is to make it all about one person. We know the BZP story is a lot sexier now because they actually made a criminal referral. So maybe they'll yeah. take another jab at it. <laughs> right. Maybe we'll, we'll see. Season two. Yeah. <laughs> if if uh, Mar Healy gives the okay. All right. Um, great, great work as always, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right.